0: We've been talking for the last couple of weeks about stuff Christians do. We're paying particular attention to four of these core, like, ancient practices that the church has been doing for over 2,000 years now. And uh, that could sound, like, super boring, except that we're, we're not talking about performing a bunch of just dead rituals for the sake of, of ritual. These are acts of worship that you and I participate in that are absolutely subversive, countercultural acts of defiance against the the unchristlike, like toxic liturgies of the world. Liturgy, that word, it simply means the communal practices that help shape our identity and they define our values. And we do them in the church, we do them outside the church, you know, whether you're at a at church or at a baseball game, there are liturgies that you follow. And liturgies can be life-giving, and they can be good, or they can lead to death, they can be truly toxic. And so when you and I Participate in these kingdom practices that we've, we're talking about. We are, especially when we do it intentionally, when we understand what we're doing, not just doing it out of ritual. When we understand what we're doing, we are are telling a story to the world about what's good and true and beautiful, and and real, and and in practicing these things, we also are becoming formed more and more into the image of Christ, and so that's why we're just spending these four weeks talking about these things. Um, I'm excited. We've talked about baptism. Uh, We talked about generosity. Next week, Mel's going to be up here talking about praise and worship uh, that we do together. It's going to be really good. Don't miss that, Um, but today, we're going to take a a deep dive into the soul-shaping practice of communion. Uh, or, or you might know it as the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. It's no my different names, and, uh, and we're gonna we're actually gonna partake of that later uh, after the service uh, towards the end of the service. Communion is something I have had uh, just lots of questions about, tons of questions people will ask about communion over the years, and it's something I don't know the last time I really taught on communion. Um, but what is the significance of it? What's really happening in communion? What is the power of communion? It's one of those things that. Can be just a nice uh, little, you know, ritual that you do once a month. You know, you uh, no big impact, but it's like a pleasant little check box you you mark off. Or for many people, communion is the focus of the whole worship event. Uh, and, and some fo- some folks will just they look forward to it more than anything. Some folks take it at home with their families every day, and it has it can be transformed for you and me into this this thing, not go from this thing that we just do, you know, between me and God into this. In the scriptures, communion represents something powerful happening in the community as well, right? Communion is in community. And so we're going to start by looking at the book of Luke. We'll look at a little bit of background, and then we'll zero in on the big idea today. Luke chapter 6, if you have your Bibles. If you don't, it's right there. Uh, Jesus, of course, in Luke 6, he's doing his Jesus thing. He's uh, roaming around healing and, and just calling people. And out of his big group of disciples, it says that he appoints 12 apostles. And 12, of course, is not random, right? Uh, uh, he is the Jewish Messiah. He's renewing Israel. And so 12 represents the 12 tribes. Okay, so here we go. Speaking of 12, one of those days, in verse 12, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Now, this is one of those parts of the Bible, when you're just, you know, reading your own, reading on your own, we could just skip right past this, because who wants to read a boring list of names? But buried in here is a really interesting tidbit. So it's Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, now, we've met Matthew before, just in the chapter before this. Uh, what was Matthew's occupation? Was tax collector. That's right, tax collector. Very good. And, and then we read about <clears throat> Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the what? Zealot. The zealot. If anybody watched The Chosen on TV, any Chosen fans? That's ah, so good, right? They call him Z in the, in the show. He, they, his nickname is Z. Now, here's why this is so significant. You have a tax collector and a zealot sitting in the room together, that was kind of a big deal. So real quick, I just want to look for a second at tax collectors. These are Jewish people who would bid with Rome for the privilege of collecting taxes on their own people. Uh, Tax collectors, they were always singled out for special mention in the Scriptures, right? So there are sinners and then there are tax collectors. It's like they were this special group of sinners. It's totally true. And, and they, they were outlawed from even participating in the synagogue because they were just ritually and perpetually unclean. They were uh, considered as Gentiles. In other words, they were so corrupt and considered so dishonest and untrustworthy, they were not even permitted into the heart of the temple with the other Jews. They were forced to remain in what was called the court of the Gentiles because they were considered unclean. They were usually disowned by their families. Uh, in the, in the Mishnah, uh, Jewish Mishnah, there's this list of seven despised classes of people, and the tax collector is listed as the most notorious, the most, the, just the worst. Later in the, in the Mishnah, it says, if tax… This is a quote. If tax collectors enter your house, everything in it becomes unclean. So, you didn't have them over for dinner, right? That's like how radioactively unclean they are. Later Jewish writings, the, the Talmud says that it's actually righteous to lie to tax collectors. <laughs> right. Which I know Americans will love that part. That they, we will claim that verse, except it's not in the Bible. That's, that's not the Bible. And so, uh, it was considered impossible to bring them to repentance because they were considered so corrupt. So, here comes Matthew into the fellowship of the apostles chosen by the pure, perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And next to him is Simon, the zealot. Let's look at zealots for just a second. The zealots considered the taxes, like it, which was like Israel's tribute to Rome, The taxes that Matthew was collecting, they considered it treason against God. The Zealots worked to overthrow the Roman government using violence against people like Matthew. And this became increasingly common in the first century, even after the the writings of the Gospels. The Zealots were known as the Sicarii. These were called dagger men, named after the little curved blade that they carried because they were always ready for violence at a moment's notice. They just had it in the robe, ready. And and so these guys were like the original insurrectionists. You could think of them like a terrorist we would think of today. These guys actually ended up provoking the destruction of Jerusalem about 40 years after Jesus in AD 70 when they engaged what's known as the Jewish War. and, And Rome just destroyed the city and the Jewish people for all intents and purposes. So on the political spectrum here of Jewish people, you could not get more opposed than tax collectors and zealots. If you were going to ask Matthew, what's the, what's the wrong with Israel? He'd point to the zealot. he said, that's the problem. They just won't get in line. And if you asked Simon the zealot, what's wrong with Israel? He would point to Matthew, right? Now, I know we don't have any context for this because we don't demonize people across the aisle in America, right? But see, buried on this list, in this list of apostles, are clues that Jesus gathered around him. People of these hugely diverse political persuasions, and this was a big deal, I mean way more so than we would say so today it was It was totally countercultural to all that was happening in Jesus' world now, as we know, if you go over to uh, Luke chapter twenty two Jesus kind of eats his way through the gospels uh, someday just look at all the time that Jesus, all the things he does around meals. It's, it's fascinating. And for those of us who want to be like Christ, that's the easy part, right? Uh, taking part of meals. Meals and, and the table is like uh, this central piece of G- the work of Jesus. There's this power of the table that the early church understood when we sit together. Because in the early church, the culture war was waged around the table, it was, that's where the culture war was, was raged. It wasn't around, you know, what bathroom people used or who you voted for or anything like that. It was around the table because when you ate with somebody, it had sig- huge significance. You were declaring something very publicly when you ate with somebody. It symbolized your acceptance of them. And Jesus was eating with people like Matthew all throughout the gospel. And so... It's not surprising that when when Jesus, when he's about ready to die, he's trying to explain to the apostles the meaning of his death, and he doesn't give them, you know, some grand theology of atonement. What he does is he gives them a meal. He gives them a meal, and he takes the Passover meal, which, we could go with so many rabbit trails there Uh, someday, right? Uh, I know you're just dying to know hear these things. But he takes the Passover meal and he he totally reorients the whole thing, its significance around him and his work. Here's the passage in Luke chapter 22 verse 14. It says, when the hour came Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. Then it says, after he'd taken the cup he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Which is a fascinating verse. Verse 19 he says, then... uh, Then he took the bread and he gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you, which is straight Old Old Testament language there. And by the way, as we've kind of seen about many of these practices, there is just enormous disagreement about all of this throughout the Christian church, right? The particulars of what's happening where and what's going on with the, with the bread and the cup and the body and the blood, right? You have kind of a Catholic viewpoint, that transubstantiation belief, which is that the, they take it very literally, which is that the, the, the bread and the cup literally become the body and the blood of Jesus inside. And so they take that very seriously. And then you have some that are sort of like, well, it's still body and uh, it's still bread and wine, but like Jesus is present with it. So you have kind of a, a Lutheran belief, which is constant, con, Constantinople constant, what is it? I'm trying. To, my tongue is so tied now. Consubstantiation. That's what it is. There it is. Uh, need more caffeine this morning. But that's where, so you have the, the bread and the cup, but it, 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 it exists along with the actual body and blood of Jesus. Anyway, all these different, all these different uh, teachings and doctrines on this stuff. And then you have uh, people from our tribe, which is more it, that it was that Jesus is present, but it's, it's more of, uh, symbolic of the covenant. It's symbolic of the covenant. And so in verse 21, it says, but Jesus then says, but the hand of him... Who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Everybody quickly put their hands in their laps, I can imagine, right then. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves which of them it might be the one to do this. And then, at the Lord's Supper, at this most holy event, this is what happens a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. I love these guys so much, right? Bless their hearts. If you you know the Gospels, they argue about this all the time. (laughs) They're obsessed with this. So here's how Luke 22 paints the picture, all right? It starts with Judas deciding to betray Jesus. Uh, And then you have the Lord's Supper. And then they argue about who's the greatest. And then Jesus, he will say to Peter in just a little bit, you're going to deny me three times. And so among these, who who exactly here is a religious all-star sitting at the table with Jesus? Nobody, right? They're going to deny him. They're going to betray him. They're going to abandon him. Not one of them is left standing in the next 8 to 12 hours. Not one. And so any question of who is worthy to come to the Lord's Supper is answered right here. Jesus is sharing communion with Judas and Peter and all of us who would Denier, betrayer, betray or abandon Jesus, right? He still invites those kind of people to the table. Now, it's not surprising then for the early church um, after Jesus, uh, the, the, this picture of a meal together, it becomes really the defining ritual for them. They would literally take the words of Jesus and they would share and eat together this meal. And so there's a famous summary of the early church's practice found in Acts chapter 2 where he says, verse 42, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. Breaking of bread there, it can mean like a meal, but it most likely is talking about the Lord's Supper. He took the bread and he broke it. So they would call that the breaking of bread. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave to everyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and the Lord added to their number. Um, And so Luke gives us a couple of these sort of snapshots here of how radical the early Christians were. And central to the, the radical nature of this church was the common meal that they would share. They're sitting together, and they called it the meal. You know, they, they sat together. So meals are super important all through the Bible, but very important in the time of Jesus. And here's what made the meal that the Christians shared totally unique in their world. It was a meal of people who did not belong together. They were not even supposed to be eating together. They were celebrating a crucified and risen Messiah. And the most radical thing about the meal was that it was composed of imperfect people, of all social classes, all vocations, all ethnic groups. I mean, every way that you could categorize people was just erased when you sat around this common meal together. It was, it was literally just absolute social revolution. In fact, this is from one scholar named Peter Oakes. He said, if Paul's house churches were composed of about 30 people, which would have been uh, like the largest, Jesus and Paul would look at this sanctuary today and just be like, oh my goodness, how could you even have a church in, in how can you do church in a room this big? Because um, church would have been in homes, 30 people max. Uh, this would have been, he says, this would have been their approximate makeup. You would have had a craft worker in whose home they met, along with his wife, children, a couple of male slaves, a female domestic slave, a dependent relative. You would have had some tenants living there with you with families and slaves as dependents, also living in the same house in rented rooms. You would have had some family members of a neighbor who himself was not participating in the house church, a couple of slaves whose owners did not attend, some freed slaves who did not participate in the church, but they're there for the food, a couple of homeless people, a few migrant workers renting small rooms in the house, several Jews from the local synagogue and an enslaved prostitute. So now that makeup coming together around a table was nowhere else in Roman society. There was nowhere else in Roman society where all these people mingled together. It just didn't happen. Let alone share a meal, which for them sharing a meal communicates acceptance and kinship. Right? Remember? You you didn't just share a meal with somebody you kind of disagree with. Acceptance and kinship. You with me? So this was absolute, I, I mean, we, we have nothing really to compare with it in American culture because we are so egalitarian. We, you know, but, but in this world, in Jesus' world of, of extreme hierarchy, this was the declaration in, in just in the most powerful symbolic terms imaginable. This was the declaration of a community of equals, of brothers and sisters, siblings, the rich and the powerful, Were there, the lowly and the mighty were there, the wise and the ignorant, the the literate and the illiterate, the the, the free and the slaves, the citizens and the non citizens at at the same table. And every every which way you could possibly slice up human beings, they were there. And the revolution of Jesus was not just that you know Jesus saves individuals to go to heaven when they die, but that Jesus is creating this new kind of family. That was the thing that was so compelling to the Roman world, watching this, a community of equals in a world of such extreme hierarchy. So later on in in the New Testament, we see Paul, he's going around, he's talking about the Jesus movement, and notice some of the things he says about it. Like in 1 Corinthians, he says, "'For we are all baptized by one Spirit to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile.'" That was a massive distinction. Slave or free, we are all given one spirit to drink. In Galatians, he says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, neither is there male or female. That's actually a quote from Genesis 1, interestingly enough. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's not saying that your Jewishness and your Gentileness or your slaveness or your freeness just like go away, that they don't exist, but he's saying that none of those distinctions have any significance in this new family being created here, right? We're part of this new humanity, and this this family just doesn't keep score that way. Or in Colossians, he says, here there is neither Gentile nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian. There was a joke about Scythians, like a barbarians, you know, barbarians is kind of an insult, you say, well, who do barbarians call barbarians? If you're a barbarian, you would call them Scythians. That's, they were like the lowest of the low. I think that's funny. No one else, no one else ever does. That's, that's cool. Whatever. Uh, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Christ is uh, I could just park there. So what are they pointing to? What is it they're pointing to when someone asks the resurrection of Jesus, like, how do we know that Jesus has really risen from the dead? They would say, look at this new family, right? That was their argument. And in this new family, all of the ways that we identify ourselves are rendered secondary, if not obsolete, next to what it means to be in Christ as brothers and sisters. In fact, uh, one historian puts it this way, and I know you love it when I quote historians, um, I can see it on your faces. Martin Goodman, he's one of the leading scholars of the Roman world. He says this, on the public level, Roman society was highly stratified on the basis of birth and wealth, the social political status of each adult male citizen was fixed at irregular censuses, you know, like uh, Joseph and Mary participated in. On the domestic scale, the only fully legally recognized person, and each family unit was its male head, the paterfamilias. And Scott McDyte, one of just my all-time favorite uh, writers, scholars, he says this, hierarchy, status, reputation, connections were the empire. They were everything. The church, in contrast to that, was God's grand social experiment, where there was no Roman, no Greek, no Egyptian, no barbarian. The Romans, from the elites to the slaves, experienced the church as nothing short of a wild revolution of equality. Amen. If that doesn't get you shouting, amen. Now, I was thinking about this. You know, today, there's a lot of weird stuff happening in our culture. And when we say this, this revolution of equality, today, it can like bring up all kinds of like really mixed feelings about this kind of stuff. What it's talking about here, today, I feel like there is a cry of the heart of people out in the world for equality, right? And it comes out in, in some really strange and in weird and twisted ways. You know, know, today there's a lot of talk about like wokeism and things like this. And it's not a surprise when we see the cry of the human heart is to be seen to be seen as an individual, to be recognized. And I feel like God wants to show the world that is what I offer. I offer everything of the cry of the human heart, but it's in, of course it's coming out in, in these tragic ways, these twisted ways. So we get like, you know, 32 different genders or something like that. When God is, is, gives us Jesus Christ, he gives us the kingdom, he gives us the family that offers the true equality, this, this cry of the heart to be seen. And that is, that is what it is. So it just creates for us some compassion for people. When, you know, when they say things that we're just, we just shake our heads at, the cry of the heart. Now, let me ask you a question. Okay, so we're talking about all this, this beautiful new humanity, this, this uh, kingdom of God, this kingdom bliss, based on what we know of human nature for the early church. Do you think this was easy? Was this kingdom bliss, new humanity thing, did it just come without any hiccups? Absolutely not, right? Uh, This is what I love about the New Testament too. It doesn't ignore all of the stumblings and the roadblocks and the hiccups, you know, that the new church experienced in trying to make this a reality. The New Testament is not airbrushed in any way. So let's just rehearse all the ways this gets screwed up for a second. Off the top of our heads, we'll see in the book of Acts, there are widows who are Greek and, and they're not being taken care of, but the widows who are Jewish are. And so that injustice has to be dealt with in the church. In Acts 15, uh, there are Jews who are saying, hey, if you're a Gentile and you want to, you know, ha- have to be, you have to become Jewish before you follow the, our Jewish Messiah. And the church almost splits over this ethnic division. In the book of Romans, right, uh, the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians couldn't stand each other and they judged each other as strong and weak. And, and Paul writes 16 chapters of like really thick material to deal with that. In 1 Corinthians, oh, Corinthians, these guys, they were, they were amazingly messed up. Paul spends three chapters just saying, listen, you can't play favorites. You can't do that. I know some of you like Peter and some of you like Apollos, some of you like me, but you're all just ridiculous for all this like celebrity worship. And praise the Lord that we've gotten over that, right? No, there's, there's no more like celebrity pastor worship. Thank you, Jesus. The scriptures hardly even apply to us anymore. Um, and then later, he tells the Corinthian church in chapter 11, they're celebrating the Lord's Supper wrongly. And some of them were even dying because of it, right? And I always heard that that was preached. I heard preached that that was because they weren't like morally pure. But that's not at all what the text says. It describes what's happening. The Scripture says that as they were taking the Lord's Supper, what they would do is the rich would go into the inner rooms of the house with the other rich people, and they would eat the best of the food. And sometimes they were even getting drunk on the communion wine. And and they would eat it first. Meanwhile, the poor… Or like of the, the poor members of the church would eat, you know, out in the port, front porch or out in the atrium. They're left out there with no place to sit. And they would get the worst food that was left over and they would get it last. And that was actually what it means to take the Lord's Supper in this unworthy manner. Or one time Paul had to confront Peter in Galatians. Peter, uh, he had come to, a, you know, this enlightened revelation that like all, all people are created equal. And yeah, yeah, Jews and Gentiles, let's all eat together. But then some Jews came to Jerusalem, and Peter was like, nope, uh, no thanks. He so I mean, some, yeah, some Gentiles came to Jerusalem, and he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. He would only eat with the Jews. And Paul had to, like, get into his face. Oh, to be a fly on the wall in that room. That would be so amazing. Like, showdown between Peter and Paul. You know, Paul, I mean, uh, Peter, he's the one who, like, walked with Jesus. He, like, went camping with Jesus for three years. Paul's the newcomer. And Paul's like, yeah, I had to call out Peter, you know, because he wasn't walking in line with the gospel. So this isn't easy. It wasn't just like this instant transformation. It wasn't easy in any shape or form. But this is what communion was to represent. The commitment of this diverse group of people who may have nothing to do with each other, but the commitment of those people to put aside their differences and proclaim the unity that is theirs in Christ Jesus by sharing a common meal together. And this was revolutionary. And today, it feels probably more revolutionary than ever uh, Ever since. Um, I don't know about you, but my social media feeds are just filled with people passionately disagreeing with each other, right? Whether, you know, you're, you're us older generations on Facebook, or you're like the kids on Instagram and TikTok and all these kind of things. It's the same thing. It feels a lot of ways like the country tearing itself apart, doesn't it? It really does. And the picture of communion for Christians today can sometimes be messy, just like it was in the early church. Um, We tend to hang out with people that we agree with. That just comes naturally, right? Are you just you're going to enjoy that lunch better when you're both agreeing about the same stuff and high fiving. Uh, we tend to avoid the people that we don't like. That's just it's human. We even tend to gravitate toward people. A lot of folks gravitate toward people who are of the same ethnicity, and they might even say, "You know, I'm not a racist, but it's it's because there's just something more comfortable about hanging out with people who have the same." experience with culture as you do, right? And I've talked to my Hispanic friends, my white friends, my black friends, and it's the, it's the same all across the board. There's just a comfort level with hanging out people who have experienced the same experiences as you have. And so it's just, it, there's something more relaxing about that. And so <clears throat> it's totally human. It's just not Christian. It's not Christian, and, so, and, and we have this idea, we, we avoid people who have a different perspective sometimes, and it, which it's kind of discouraging because it, it's so gross, it's so sad, because there's, it makes you think like there's just nothing new under the sun um, with the people of God. We keep reenacting the same sorts of faults and failures, and God is so merciful to us. Um, but what <clears throat> communion does, what communion does is it subverts that liturgy, that, and I know it's a very sensitive topic, but we're, we're gonna go there a little bit today, and that's the liturgy of the way we do politics. And I'm not talking about having the right opinion today, uh, the right opinion about you know Republican, Democrat, uh, pro-Trump, anti-Trump, taxes, borders, gun rights, any of that stuff. What I am talking today is about how Christians talk to each other about those things. How do we talk to each other? So I just wanna take what we've learned theologically here and apply it practically to the most sensitive topic in American culture, which is politics. They say you're never supposed to talk about politics if you are at dinner. And so uh, I am talking about the thing nobody's supposed to be talking about when we get together. I want to say, first of all, um, you're my brothers and sisters. I consider you family. And um, I feel such a compassion for you. I feel a compassion for you because wherever you are on the political spectrum, I don't really care. But I know how hard it is to be true to what you believe while remaining loving towards others. That is hard. And, uh, and we get to, you know, we have a, the privilege of getting to come in here and sort of lay down our burdens for an hour and a half every week. Um, but I know, I know for you, the other six days of the week, Many of you just feel beaten and attacked by a culture that does not share your values. That's hard. And you can feel attacked out there. And it can feel hard then to love. It can be hard to love. And for some of you that I've talked to, it's a little bit the other way. I know coming to church can be hard for you. Because there are certain issues that you have, that you see, that you don't see eye to eye with how maybe the majority of evangelicals around you seem to feel. And so for you, you're practicing grace and humility and love out in the world, and when you come among your brothers and sisters in the church. So let's just acknowledge, first of all, this is hard, right? This isn't a condemnation. We may be Christians, but it is hard when you and I swim in the liturgy of American politics. So guys, I just just want you to know I have compassion for you. I love you. I pray for you every single day. Um, So I'm not here to beat you up further. What I'm here to do today is give you permission to set aside the anger and the fear that we get bombarded with six days a week. To set it aside. Because we're called to something much more beautiful, aren't we? So let's let's look at kind of these waters that we swim in. The, The liturgy of political discourse that we're raised in. It's the liturgy, it's the language of culture war. It's the stoking of fear, right? What do we always hear? The future of our country is at stake. So there's tons of fear right off the bat, tons of fear. It is fascinating to me. I have been told since I've been born that every election in my lifetime is the most important election of my lifetime. Okay. And, and And there's this fostering of continual outrage and grievance. What the other side is doing is always is always considered outrageous, right? And we always are expected to be upset about it. And we engage in uh, the liturgy of, of of this political discourse, engages in what's called catastrophizing. And that is where the actions of the other side, they're not just disagreeable to us, but they threaten our existence. Uh, We see this on campuses today. College campuses today have this idea that words equal violence. And so if you have a a speaker who's gonna come to visit the campus, they'll pick it, even having that speaker come and talk. Because no more, you know, our campus is a place where like ideas are debated and exchanged. No, those words are violent, so we can't even have them. And that is just like the, the, The the waters we swim in. uh, More on this, by the way. Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mind, is amazing. Go read that book. It's so good. Um, It's funny. Sociologists have told us that things have flipped around. We used to love our allies more than we hated our opponents, and that's not that's different now. We now hate our opponents more than we love our allies. We hate our opponents more than we love our allies, which, by the way, makes it super easy to flip on an ally if they don't seem sufficiently outraged as you are, right? If they have the gall to not be outraged enough. Today's politics uh, is built on othering. It's all about us versus them, us versus them. It's not Jesus and the church for them. It's not us versus them. And you're given permission to treat political opponents as enemies, and by the way history teaches us all the way from the insurrection to the Weimar Republic of Germany that that is the first step toward uh, you treat you you dehumanize people you treat them as subhuman you treat your uh, you eventually they are worthy of destruction they're worthy of destruction so it starts with demonizing and treating a political opponents not as folks who have a different opinion or a different avenue or a different take on you know, making America better, <clears throat> but they're now anti-American. They're not worthy of even meeting at the table. Demonizing. Uh, demonization, by the way, uh, <clears throat> is a wonderful way of engaging in Facebook. Uh, if you read the Bible, especially with your eyes closed, uh, Jesus uh, <laughs> says that's, that's great. He recommends it. No, I'm kidding. Um, <clears throat> ass- assuming the worst of your opponents. Holding these exaggerated views of your opponents. Both sides do this. Both sides. It goes beyond saying <clears throat> that you, you, you can't just say that they're mis- mistaken or misguided. It's saying that they're evil. They are absolutely evil. Uh, and they're out to get us, right? They're out to get us. That's, it's why uh, they say that outraged tweets or messages, um, they get way more likes than... You know, some sort of like reasonable middle-of-the-road tweet or message, like nobody looks at that. Nobody's going to like that. But like you outrage it, you get like all the loves. And then there's all this like self-reinforcing media ecosystems that we watch or we, we get online. It's called the siloing effect. So we're only getting one side of everything, anyway. And if you've lived in this country 25 years ago, uh, even you know, sociologists have pointed this out. It was an interesting thing. You know, when I grew up, we all complained about CBS News. You know, uh, CBS News, it's slanted, you know, or NBC News, or whatever. But we all watched the same news. We're all watching the same news, and then you made your own decision, you, know, you had your own opinion about it. But we don't have that anymore. We're not watching the same stuff anymore. And, and if you go online, when you're getting your information online, you could find anything you want to back up what you think. right? And so that's the liturgy of politics that we swim in. That is why I have such compassion for the church. This is the waters we swim in. And I'm not saying any of us do any of these things, but I know I am perfectly capable of doing it. I have been guilty of doing this. And I'm just saying as a family of new creation beings, these are the waters that we swim in. And so we can have compassion and grace for one another, compassion and grace for one another. Now let's talk about something better. This is the liturgy of the Lord's Supper, What does it look like? It's very different. The liturgy of the Lord's Supper is rooted in hospitality. Literally, the word hospitality means love of stranger. Love of stranger. It's the liturgy of welcome. It's the place where invisible becomes visible. So the invisible person on the outside screaming, look at me, see me, right? They become visible inside. It's the liturgy of mutuality, right, where we serve each other. We're a family of brothers and sisters who are gifts to each other. You're a gift to me. That person there is a gift to you, right? It is the liturgy of acceptance and belonging. While, yes, we are doing the hard work of, of challenging one another and sharpening each other to become more like Jesus. But there's acceptance. There's belonging. We start with that. We start with the fact that you're, you belong at the table, and then we'll, we'll challenge each other from there, right? It's the liturgy of diversity and unity, not uniformity of opinion. It's the liturgy of friendship and equality and humi- humility and grace. It's the liturgy of listening and serving and caring and rejoicing. It's the liturgy of reconciliation, justice, and shalom. That is what I want every single person to experience here who comes, who comes in these doors. Isn't that what you desire too? I know it is. Every person wrestling with issues of of justice and gender and sexuality and race and economics and politics, everything. We all want that. A place where you are seen here, you belong here, you are welcome here. And it takes so much work to be those people because the easy liturgy is, is to not ever be those people. And so when we take this bread and this cup, yes, we, we, it's what Jesus did for us. But what did he do? What did he do? He rescued us into a new community that has to fight not to play by the same rules. We have to fight for the right not to party, to not fight. We fight for the right not to fight, right? And so my friends, here's the thing. I know it is... Here's the thing, we, we actually want to practice this as a community, that's our desire. Um, and so when you take this today, and you can be getting it ready if you like here, uh, when you take this, I want you to do something, I want you to look around at your brothers and sisters beside you and across the room. Everyone here, and uh, not everybody's here today, we have some, some folks out. But we have a beautiful congregation, guys. Amen. We have a beautiful family here. I love this church. And I'm not saying that I love this building or the sign out front at all. I'm saying you. I love this church because this is, this is a diverse church. and We could be more diverse. Amen. God, uh, we pray God will make that happen. But, but when we look at our brothers and sisters here, I talk to you, and, you know, we have conversations, and some of us, some of your brothers and sisters here are Republicans. Some of them are independents. Some of them might be libertarians, or some of them might be Democrats. Some people have given up on the whole game, and they just write in Jesus at every, every time they <laughs> fill out a ballot. I get that, too. Right. Some people love Trump. Some people can't stand him. That's just a fact, right? Some people got vaccinated during COVID. Some people didn't. Some of us can't wait for the election in 24, and some of us have a real sense of dread about it. Some of us want to protect the Second Amendment. Some of us want AR-15s off the street. We're all sitting in the same, same room. Some of us want the church to have a more impactful voice uh, in our national politics, and some of us want the church to be an oasis from politics. Some of us are from very morally uh, righteous backgrounds, and some of us are, are notorious sinners. Some of us have it all together, and some of us are just barely holding it together, all in the room. Some of us are wrestling with deep, deep questions about our faith, wondering if any of this is really true. Some of us love the church, and some of us We have been so hurt by the church that just you being here is such a miracle. And we want to be the kinds of people who simply say, you are welcome at the table. You're more than welcome. You belong at this table. The Lord's Supper is for you because this is where we get to rehearse new creation together. It's where we pledge ultimate allegiance to the kingdom and the king that sits on that throne wherever you are, however you vote, or whatever you think the direction of the country is going, we are delighted that you are here. You make us better by being here. You make us more Christ-like by being here. We don't get to choose your family, right? I used to say that about my friends. I'd be like, the friends are the family you get to choose? This is family. You don't get to choose your family. And yes, we got some weird aunts and uncles here. I'm probably one of the, I'm probably one of the weird ones. I get it. No question about it. But that is why we practice this. So my friends, I know we live in a strange time. It is an odd, odd time. And the church has the opportunity to be something so unique. It, it matters that we gather. It matters that we, we take this bread and this cup. That you are sitting here next to these very different people sharing the meal together. That matters. So today, if, if you're somebody and you are willing to be part of this kind of family, whatever your denominational background, we don't care. If you are willing to trust enough in Jesus to have made him your Lord and him your guiding light, then we welcome you to partake of this communion with us. It is in Christ that we are made one, that through his flesh that was broken, his blood that was spilt, that anyone... It says, whosoever will, even those who feel invisible outside these doors can come in here and become visible. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord God, that you invite us to be part of this new creation people, Father God. I'm just I'm overwhelmed to be a part of that invitation, to be a part of this body. I feel so lucky, Lord God, God, my prayer is always is that your spirit is it's sifting and sorting inside of us. And we, I pray that we respond to your spirit. Help us to respond with courage, with humble hearts. Reveal to us the things that, that should comfort us and should encourage us. And reveal those things, Lord God, that ought to challenge us, maybe discomfort us a little bit. And God, we want to be a community that really does practice love of stranger, that practices hospitality, that that hospitality we see so embodied in the person of Jesus. As you welcomed us, Lord God, may we welcome other people. So God, Father, help us to be those people. Help us to walk in a manner that is worthy of you. We love you, Lord. Forgive us of our sins today and all of our unrighteousness as we take this bread and this cup in remembrance of you, Lord God, and not just in remembrance of you, but in allegiance to the way of life that you've called us to. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. The body of Christ, broken for you. Thank you, Lord. the blood of Christ, shed for you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for inviting us to the table. We praise you and we honor you. Hallelujah. Amen, amen. Friends, will you stand to your feet with me today? Our prayer partners are coming up right now. If there's anything you need prayer about, anything at all going on in your life you would like somebody to stand in faith with you, please do come forward and and let them pray with you. It's not the same when we pray. It is not the same when we pray. And uh, whatever it is, whether it's something in your health, your finances, uh, a relationship going on in your life, your job, come forward and let them pray with you. If you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time today, you want to be part of this new humanity that we're talking about, what a, what, there's no better time than right now. Just come forward and let these good people pray for you right now. They're going to love you. They're going to pray with you and, and show you that next right step to take. Amen. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you in this day that we're living in. Grace and peace be with you.